Now that the elections are over in Taiwan, it seems like everyone and their mother has a hot take. Now that the dust has settled in today's Taiwan Insider, we're going to have some key takeaways. I'm Andrew Ryan. I'm Natalie. So let's take a look at what's been on our radar this week. President Tsai has won a second term in office. After winning the 2020 election Saturday, she told the BBC that Taiwan does not need to declare its independence because it is already sovereign. Taiwan has laid to rest eight members of the military who were killed in a helicopter crash on January 2nd. Among their number was Chief of the General Staff Shen Yiming. People lined the streets to watch as a motorcade brought the deceased to the Defense Ministry, where President Tsai and other top officials paid their respects. At the funeral, the president pledged her full support to the armed forces. Health authorities are working to keep a pneumonia outbreak in the Chinese city of Wuhan from reaching Taiwan. Although the disease appears to only spread between people under limited circumstances, officials aren't taking any chances. Precautionary measures include health screenings at the nation's airports. The military is taking extra steps to ensure Taiwan's safety during the upcoming Lunar New Year holiday. The air force held drills to ensure that it can scramble F-16s in just six minutes. And a story that went under our radar this week: mobile payments have surged in Taiwan in an unlikely demographic, people over the age of 46. Statistics show that close to 78% of those aged 46 to 55 made mobile payments last year. Large numbers of senior citizens are adopting the technology too. On Saturday, Taiwan re-elected President Tsai Ing-wen and a brand new legislature. Let's take a look at what happened that night. President Tsai Ing-wen was re-elected on Saturday with over eight million votes. That's a record high for any Taiwan president. Though China cut off official dialogue and stepped up the pressure on Taiwan during Tsai's first term, the people of Taiwan decided to stick with the president, who says she won't bow to China's tactics. I, Tsai Ing-wen, have held on. We together have held on to this land of freedom. We have held on to this fortress of democracy. I'm sure that the democratic countries of the world and our friends in Hong Kong will be happy about the decision we made. Am I right? Taiwan, 57 percent of the vote, one percent higher than when she was first elected, and many polls show that she has strong support among young people. He says, of course, Tsai Ing-wen would win because she is steadfast in her principles. This woman says, I'm proud to be Taiwanese. The people of Taiwan have made the right choice. Right after her victory, she held an international press conference, and she had a message for China. Today, I want to once again call on the Beijing authorities to remind them that peace, parity, democracy, and dialogue are the key to positive cross-strait interactions and long-term stable development. Tsai's rival, Kaohsiung Mayor Han Guoyu of the Kuomintang, had many devoted fans. He won over 5.5 million votes, nearly 39 percent of the electorate, while PFP candidate James Sung won just over 4 percent. After Han lost, he congratulated President Tsai Ing-wen on her victory and called on her to work for the happiness and security of the people of Taiwan. The KMT's Hangul lost by over 2.6 million votes. Now, during our live election coverage, we asked the head of 
Stanford University's Taiwan Democracy and Security Project, Carl's Templeman, where he thinks the KMT should go from here. The million-dollar question for the KMT is how they recover from this defeat and uh, what their China policy is going to look like going forward. Um, it obviously wasn't uh, good enough to win this election, and it's given their reliance on older voters and their trouble with young voters that uh, challenge is just going to get much worse over the next uh, couple of election cycles. And so they really need to think long and hard about how to reform their policy and their own internal organization as well. So it's not just about China policy. It's also about how they're going to get younger voters. How are yeah. they going to groom the next generation? Do you have your eyes on anybody from the KMT that could potentially... <laughs> help bring the the party into the 2020s? <laughs> well, um, it's easy to forget tonight that the KMT actually had a smashing victory in 2018, and most of the local county and city executives are KMT members. And so that's where the real talent of the next generation of the party lies, and that's where I would expect to find uh, the next most formidable uh, national party leader or candidate. Uh, so Ho Yo Yi in New Taipei is an obvious uh, possibility. Mm -hmm. Lu Xiu Yan as the mayor of, um, of Taichung City is another one. Um, and uh, so the, those two are, they, they lead major municipalities in Taiwan. They're both uh, local politicians, first and foremost. They haven't gotten involved in too many intra-party fights or ideological battles. And so that, that tends to make a better profile for a formidable national run. With President Tsai winning by such a big margin on Saturday night, you could say that she has a mandate to push forward with her policies. But does the DPP also have room for improvement? Here's what political economist Sharu Shirley Lin had to say. You can see there is appeal for the KMT, mm -hmm. uh, and there is very strong appeal. You would say it's a minority. Uh, however, you cannot ignore those voters. So from my point of view as a political economist, I would say that the DPP needs to look out. Are they solving people's livelihood problems? Are they giving people jobs and a future? I don't think there's very much the DPP can do about China because that's up to Beijing. Mm. The cars are in Beijing's court. But the DPP uh, needs to um, uh, develop strategies to develop better public policy, uh, implement domestic reforms to benefit a broad spectrum of society, uh, and look at the three million voters for Han Guoyu that you see on the screen. Mm. Uh, they need to feel like they're part of the community. Mm. And what do you think they should do? The government, the new government in terms of economics. The DPP. Yeah. Yes. Our future is with young leaders who are willing to sacrifice their own um, uh, if you will, uh, there are many things they could have been doing. Uh, it's not easy running for office in Taiwan. And I think that the DPP needs to uh, be a younger party, develop better public policy um, think tanks, uh, and really hear the voice of people and not assume that just because they win in this election um, that they can just, uh, uh, they, they lack public consultation, if you will, both on cross-street relations, on business relations, um, and uh, on domestic reforms. China put a lot of pressure on President Tsai in her first term, so many are wondering what's next in relations with China. Well, I asked the head of Stanford University's Taiwan Democracy and Security Project, Carl's Templeman, what he thinks will happen in cross-street relations in Tsai's second term. The ball is really in Beijing's court. Mm -hmm. um, there's... Uh, 
a couple ways to interpret this election from Beijing, but what you cannot interpret it as is a sign that their current strategy towards Taiwan is working. You know, they they tried to undercut Tsai Ing-wen almost from her first day in office. They uh, have poached a bunch of diplomatic allies. They put a lot of pressure on her administration in the international sphere, and. Uh, all of that has resulted in a, you know, a share of the vote in 2020 that is almost exactly the same as what she got in 2016. So it's it's a repeat. Uh, That's true. Yeah. That's true. So, so nothing's changed in terms yeah, of Yeah, so if this is support. your strategy, then... Um, uh, so one way to interpret this in Beijing is that their strategy is just fundamentally failing and they may need to you know, take a pause, step back, and, and fundamentally reassess. And there is... There is a precedent for that in Beijing's Taiwan policy. They did something like that in uh, 2005 after Chen Shui-bian narrowly won re-election. His second term, yeah. yeah. Now, we also asked Templeman if he thinks China will change its strategy and perhaps be friendlier to Tsai and her administration. From my perspective, that would be Beijing's smart move, because mm-hmm. um, obviously the DPP is not going away anytime soon. It's what, who they're going to have to deal with for the next four years and maybe beyond that. Um, but uh, we haven't seen a whole lot of flexibility or creative thinking from uh, Xi Jinping's China these days. Uh, and so what I worry about is that they'll pursue a kind of, they'll basically double down on what mm. they've done in the last four years. Uh, so it's a kind of beatings continue until the morale improves strategy. <laughs> mm. So um, so they'll continue to poach diplomatic allies. They'll continue to pressure the administration, uh, shrink economic space. There's some actual... Uh, economic concerns coming up. ECFA, for instance, uh, is set to potentially expire at the end of this year, uh, September of this year. ECFA, Economic Cooperation Framework Agreement? Yeah, so this was an agreement uh, pushed forward by the Ma administration uh, signed in 2010 that uh, laid a framework for cross-strait economic uh, negotiations. This week on Who in Taiwan, I'm going to have Natalie and Andrew guess this patriotic leader. Mm. Now, guys, we're just coming out of the elections. This could be anybody. That's right. Could so many anybody. people in the news. Button yes. number one, I have Natalie So. Button number two, I have Andrew Ryan. You guys ready to play? Yes. Ready to play. All right, here we go. Number one. He was born in Shilin, Taipei. His father was an engineer. His father passed away due to a work accident when he was young. He got into Taipei's most prestigious boys' school, Jenguo High School. However, he would later drop out to work to take some financial burden off of his mother. He's a trained pilot. In fact, he's trained in Saudi Arabia. He was one of the first to be trained in the Mirage F-2000-5. He had a hand in getting Taiwan the F-16Bs. Andrew. This is the military, one of the guys who died in the Black Hawk accident, Aww. Leo, General Leo Shi. Uh, we're actually Leo? talking about Chief of General Staff, Sheng uh, yes, Yimin. Yes, that's right. Sheng Yimin. Yeah, oh, man, I got the name wrong. And um, so this sad. is him. This picture is of him and his family member. And um, it's kind of unfortunate that we always do who in Taiwan when someone's passed away, when it's me at least. Mm-hmm. And uh, I saw the video of his uh, service and this was re- it just moved me because we think of military general types as these tough, hardened guys. But here you just see another side of him where he has a family. Yeah. Um, in fact, this, was, this is him in full military uniform posthumously awarded one medal uh, but during his career in the military he actually had three he got three medals 
um, and posthumously uh, elevated to the rank of senior general. So right now you see he's got three stars on. This was when he was still in service. Um, and when he was promoted to have four, a four-star general by President Tsai Ing-wen during the mm. service. Now, what happened was, and I want to cover this because mm. we had a lot of election coverage. We didn't really touch on this. So what happened was a Black Hawk helicopter carrying, I think, five, uh, three crew and ten passengers took off from Taipei Songshan Air Base, uh, and they were headed to Ilan to do some inspection at a radar. Now... When the helicopter got to around Ulai, it crashed 13 minutes after taking off, and eight people were uh, unfortunately did not make it. Five were injured and sent to the hospital. The eight people I have are here, and among them are about five officers. And on the top left, you'll see Shen Yiming right there. Wow, so young, some of them. Uh, so tra- so tragic. That's I mean, right. People only had good things to say about him. He yeah. Was- yeah. You know, I, what was really striking for me was watching um, when they had the motorcade through the city and they had so many cars and they had people lining the streets. They had people saluting the cars as they went by. It was really moving. What's, what's even more important is that, you know, we came, uh, came, we're coming out of elections, which is kind of a divisive time for everybody. But you have to remember that when these guys put on the uniform, they fight for a country no matter who's in power, no matter who's been elected. So I think this is a great way to salute them and just remember that this kind of happened and it's a very tragic accident. Mm, thank you so much for that, no Leslie. That's a wonderful uh, Who in Taiwan for this week. This week on Hashtag Taiwan, elections. Now, they're funny (laughs) things because candidates and people like to make a lot of promises and speculations leading up to them. But you know what, guys? Talk is cheap. (laughs) That's why the Internet exists, for accountability. Mm -hmm. Take, for example, this guy. His name is He Sun Mo, and there's a Facebook group dedicated to finding him called The Search for He Sun Mo. Why? Well, because he said this. If Tsai Ing-wen can get over 8 million votes, then I'll buy a Pie for every person in Taiwan. Please that's screenshot this for me. And that's, that's a crazy, chicken that guy. steak. That's right. Pie is uh, kind of like the deep-fried chicken cutlet. Oh. It's a Taiwanese snack. Everybody loves it. And it's kind of, you know, he kind of used it as a bargaining chip. That's or a, a lot chip of chicken. Of <laughs> anyway, that's not important, you guys. The important thing is, do you guys remember how many votes President Tsai Ing-wen got this time? Eight over 8 million. million. 8.17 million votes, <laughs> which means a lot of people are looking for Hus and Moy. Where's the G-Pie? You know what? In fact, even Swedish environmentalist Greta Thunberg <laughs> is getting in on it by demanding some G-Pie right now. Anyway, there's so many of these like betting things online that I'm only going to cover some notable figures and I'm going to cover the people who need to pony up. For example... Xie Longjie, this man on the left here, he's a KMT Tainan City Councilor. Now, he made a deal with Xie Zizong, who is a DPP City Councilor in Taizong. They said whoever, whosever party can take five seats in this next legislative election, the other person will have to jump into this canal right here in Taichung City. <laughs> Sounds good. Now, the DPP won five seats, and Xie Longjie actually being a very good sport, he was just like, you know what? Promises need to be kept. I will jump into the canal. 
very, very nice. Nice. Cool. And the other person that was earlier mentioned in Taiwan by number by Andrew is Huang Zaosun. Now she ran for legislator in Kaohsiung for the KMT, and she said she was so confident in her ability to win. She actually said, "You know what? If I don't win, I'm going to jump into Lotus Pond." <gasps> oh in Kaohsiung no! City. Now, how did her election go? Yeah, well, guys, win, there's right? a theme here. Have you guys right. caught on to it? <laughs> she didn't win. <laughs> she lost to her DPP opponent. And when it came time to, you know, make good on her agreement, she said, wait, 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 that was just a joke. I'm not really going to uh, do it. Well, I mean, I think she, you know, she was in office for 27 years. She just assumed she'd be reelected, right? Yeah. When you have that much but momentum. But she shouldn't in say terms, yeah. promises she can't keep yeah. or she doesn't want to keep. That's why the internet exists. <laughs> <laughs> one final one. And this one might be my favorite. Dan Jin, he's a user on Facebook. He says, "If Tsai Ing-wen gets reelected, then I'll jump into the ring with Guan Zhang without protective gear." Now, Ooh. I'll remind you guys, Guan Zhang is Holger Chen. <laughs> he's a gym owner. He's a prominent online uh, personality, and he's also ex-special forces. He looks like this. <laughs> Now you might figure why someone wouldn't want to jump into oh the ring with goodness. him without protective gear. And you know what? Fun fact: actually, Holger got in on some of the action. He promised to buy ten thousand chicken steaks if tying one run uh, one re-election. And last we heard from them, he was getting them ready. Oh, good wow. for him! Very nice, Leslie. Dow with the receipts. That's Thank right. You so much. <laughs> Taking names and making sure everything's good. Awesome. So that's this week's hashtag. Taiwan. Now the elections have taken their toll on Taiwan. It seems like divisions are deeper than ever before. But no matter what candidates you supported, there is actually still something to celebrate this week in Taiwan. Hundreds of foreign journalists and observers came to Taiwan to watch the elections, and Stanford University political scientist Carl Templeman is one of them. He tells us why so many were very impressed. It strikes me every time I come here to observe an election, just how how good Taiwanese are at elections, and how um, it's actually quite powerful to watch the vote counting.、Uh, and I have to say, we I was part of a delegation、uh, just watching the votes come out, and some people got really teary、yeah. within our own delegation. No, how, really? How do you mean? Yeah, you, you were they're upset or happy? Observers, no. Yeah, no, we're we're observers. We、no. don't really have a direct stake in、no. this, but、uh, with what's going on in Hong Kong and the.、Mm. You know, the, the refusal to allow them to elect their own leadership,、uh, the tumultuous、uh, politics we have in the United States, the、um, the troubles with democracy in the Philippines or in Malaysia or Indonesia or Thailand.、Um, the, you know, Taiwan does this really well, and nobody here seems to bat an eye. And and、uh, Taiwanese really need to appreciate just how good they've got it. That's how, a good reminder. And how good they do this. That's a very good、so. reminder because we get a little tired, actually.、Yeah. Election fatigue because <laughs> the campaigning, right, campaigning right. is so intense for a long right, time. Right, right. Everybody's just relieved that the election yeah, yeah. is yeah. over. But we have a legitimate new president. We know exactly how、uh, how many votes she's going to win. We know exactly who the new legislature is going to be. There's not. As far as I can see, so far, not any serious controversy about、uh, the vote tallying,、mm-hmm. and that goes a long way. Well, we hope you enjoyed this inside look at Taiwan this week. Be sure to smash those like and follow buttons on social media. Yes, and leave a comment below. We'd love to hear from you. For Taiwan Insider, I am Natalie So. I'm Leslie Liao, and I'm Andrew Ryan. See you next week. 
Today with Natalie So. Hello and welcome to Taiwan Today. I am Natalie So. Taiwan re-elected President Tsai Ing-wen this past week with a record high of over eight million votes. That was fifty-seven point one percent of the popular vote, a record high for a presidential election with more than two candidates. Her main rival, Kuomintang candidate Han Guoyu, received thirty-eight point six percent of the vote, and voter turnout was at seventy-five percent, nearly ten percent more than when Tsai was elected four years. Years ago, it was a peaceful and smooth election with hundreds of foreign journalists and observers in town to watch. I talk with one of those observers, former U.S. National Security Advisor to the Vice President, Steve Yates. Yates tells us what he makes of Tsai's re-election. Well, the outcome of the election, to a degree, was expected. Uh, mm-hmm. In that, a lot of the wider world, through media analysis and otherwise, had the impression that China had done a fantastic job over 2019 in showing a very uh, aggressive and unflattering uh, image uh, to the world about true. the nature of the Communist Party, mm. and so uh, the events in. Xinjiang were getting more coverage. The events in Hong Kong were profound, and right. I think it just greatly shaped the outside environment in a way that was very conducive to a comeback by President Tsai and her party. So, do you think that um, Hong Kong had a big um, impact on uh, people's uh, support for Tsai? Best I can tell from the visit here, I think the answer to that is yes. I, I take nothing away from President Tsai's efforts over the course of the campaign. Uh, it was obviously a, a very hard job to go out and try to place the case so vigorously. She was surprised by a primary challenge that she fought very hard to overcome, uh, and then in the general election, they certainly worked very, very hard to the finish to make the case. Uh, I think that though the outside environment of the one country, two systems model being completely undermined by the Chinese Communist Party uh, just undermined what had been perceived by the outside of the KMT's preferred approach of seeking some kind of a peace agreement or a trade agreement with China. Uh, the whole idea of making a deal with the, the Communist Party that could stick, I think, was deeply undermined. Right, and so do you think that China was the main factor that、uh, pe- was on people's minds in this election? Well, a lot of people will throw out the saying that is attributed to Tip O'Neill, the former Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives, that all politics is local, and there undoubtedly were a lot of local factors、uh, that influenced the elections from the local elections of late 2018 all the way through to. These、uh, general elections across the country、uh, just recently, but I, it just seems like the narrative in the United States, a lot of other countries, but especially here in Taiwan, certainly was、uh, energized by the outside events. I think the very high turnout among young voters 
is directly attributable to their identification with a common cause with the Hong Kong demonstrators. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that there's, a, uh, there's significant evidence that they were more motivated to turn out and participate in democracy, seeing the inspiring images of the Hong Kong people struggling to hold on to their freedoms. That's true. And, and the young people in Taiwan generally tend to support President Tsai uh, as opposed to Han Guoyu. So that definitely worked in her favor. Well, that was, uh, that, that was the conventional wisdom among outside analysts, for sure. And it seemed to be a key part of President Tsai's uh, re-election strategy. For political experts, you always worry whether young people will vote with the same intensity they respond to polls. So sometimes you end up with polls before elections that show strong support and strong enthusiasm, but young people can be busy or distracted and then just not go vote. But this time in Taiwan, it seemed like there was very respectable turnout by young voters, and they did seem to go overwhelmingly for President Tsai. Right. The turnout was actually greater this time, about 75 percent, than in her first and in her first election, when she got elected, which is about 66%. Right. So that's kind of unusual. Usually it's the first time you get elected, you get a, a bigger turnout. But I think that, you know, the, the events you mentioned, um, the world events, Hong Kong and China, really made it seem like a very uh, important election for the future of Taiwan. Well, what about coming from, you know, the United States, where you're from, how does the U.S. see how China has been treating uh, President Tsai, and are there concerns about how they may treat her in the second term? Well, I do think that U.S.-Taiwan relations have been particularly effective and on the upswing since the election of President Tsai and since the election of President Trump. There have been a number of uh, bills that have passed the U.S. Congress that have been supportive of enhancing ties between the United States and Taiwan. There's been an activism in the Trump administration, State Department, to push uh, countries that have diplomatic relations with Taiwan to mm-hmm. not switch when they are given inducements by uh, the Chinese communists. Uh, and so uh, while Taiwan unfortunately lost some allies in the, in the recent term, there was an unprecedented show of support and solidarity by the United States government to try to stop that trend and maybe reverse that trend. Uh, there's no question that the Chinese government has not treated President Tsai uh, or the voters of Taiwan with respect. They don't really like, understand, or embrace democracy, of course. Uh, and so they belittle the process here. But I think the United States has reawakened somewhat to the seriousness and the brutality of what the Chinese Communist Party is about. And the developments of Hong Kong really call into question whether the Chinese Communist Party can coexist with a a free and democratic society in a peaceful way. So uh, I think that's the biggest test, the neighborhood council elections in Hong Kong Mm -hmm. and the, the nationwide presidential legislative elections in Taiwan. And so far, based on what the Communist Party is saying and doing, the answer is no. Hmm. So do you expect that um, China will come down even harder on Tsai, or do you think they may change their strategy in the second term? Well, I, I think that a lot of us hope that there's a degree of rationality in Beijing, but we can't <laughs> count on that. Uh-huh. In many ways, the pressure that they would like to apply, they've already applied. Right. Uh, they've tried to squeeze Taiwan out of international organizations. They have increased military intimidation. 
they have pulled back the state-funded tourism mm-hmm. uh, that had gone forward in the my administration. And so there's a lot of things they've already done, and I think they're somewhat stuck at this point. Uh, mm-hmm. And I would be concerned about what they might do when they feel stuck. But that is not just a problem for Taiwan. I think the wider world saw this election as important, not just because Taiwan is a wonderful place, because it certainly is that, but it's because it's a test of what these Chinese intimidation and pressure moves are and how do free people together find ways to protect ourselves from them and mm-hmm. deal with the challenge that China presents. Well, you know, China is uh, the U.S.'s biggest rival, you know, as a superpower. So what role does Taiwan play in, in the U.S.-China relationship? Well, first, uh, China, China is a rival in a sense because the Communist Party has chosen to position itself in that way. Uh, there are a lot of Americans in government, business, and many other segments of life that are thoroughly open to a positive sum or win-win kind of relationship with the Chinese people. Mm-hmm. There's nothing about Chinese history or culture that's threatening or a problem for Americans or American national interests. It's what the Chinese Communist Party is doing about it. Taiwan plays an important role in helping with deterrence, but it also plays an important role in demonstrating that free people in this part of the world can uh, overcome this intimidation and stand up for their own freedoms uh, and get dignity and respect from the international community. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that's an important message. I think that people inside China, if they are rational about it, would look at Taiwan and what it's able to do and say that they would like to have some of that for themselves. And I think we, as Americans, hope that the Chinese people someday might be able to have the degree of accountable self-government that we see in Taiwan. Hmm. Um, well, it's great to have the U.S.'s support. Um, you know, we've seen it uh, grow very strong um, as China gives Taiwan more pressure. And how do you see that uh, the U.S. may continue to support uh, Taiwan and, and the President Tsai's administration in the next four years? Well, I, I think that uh, U.S. support should remain fairly constant uh, and stable, Uh, The United States government has very uh, well-established, consistent communication channels with the government in Taiwan. Uh, The U.S. Congress passed the Taiwan Travel Act, which Mm -hmm. urges the U.S. administration to send cabinet-level senior leaders to Taiwan and welcome Taiwan's elected leaders to visit the United States. So there's progress to be made in implementing that legislation that should help the people of Taiwan feel less disadvantaged and less isolated. Uh, It's extremely unfortunate, I think immoral, for the United States and free countries around the world to allow the only democracy in the world with whom we don't have diplomatic recognition to be intimidated and isolated. And so if China seeks to exclude Taiwan from international organizations, I think that serious democratic leaders around the world should go the extra mile to come to Taiwan and invite Taiwan's leaders to their countries so that the people of Taiwan see that they're not being successfully marginalized by a communist party in Beijing. Well, it's so good to have um, the support of people like you. I know that you're a good friend of Taiwan and... um and also the support of the U.S., you know, uh, for Taiwan. So, um, Stephen, thank you so much for your time. 
and for coming. Um, one last uh, question. What were your observations of the whole election process? I know you must have been here for a few days. What did you think of the rallies and, and the way the votes were counted and, and the whole process? Right. Well, I did, I did a, have a chance to bring some friends who are media commentators and political activists in the United States to come and have a little bit of a taste of Taiwan democracy. We went to some polling stations and watched the methodology of how votes are cast and counted. Uh, and while it's a little bit different than it is in some parts of the United States, it was a very effective, uh, efficient process, more so than many of ours. And they were impressed by that. But I think going to the rallies, I think that many of my friends that came for this visit were just so impressed with how committed people young and old in Taiwan are to participating. And so seeing this uptick in participation, seeing the seriousness with which people saw the election was inspiring to Americans. And it's sort of the combination of visiting with demonstrators from Hong Kong and seeing the voters in Taiwan, young and the young, old and established families participating, just reminded us not to take our freedoms for granted and to commit to stand side by side with those of common values in this part of the world. So it was a wonderful experience. Thankfully, uh, the weather accommodated and people enjoyed some sunny days, even in Taipei. Well, wonderful. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for uh, your time. And I know that you're a, a good friend of Taiwan in many ways. We thank you for that. And uh, thank you for your thoughts. My pleasure. That was Steve Yates. He's a former national security advisor to the U.S. vice president and also a former Idaho Republican Party chair. He is the CEO of consulting firm D.C. International Advisory. Thanks for tuning in to Taiwan Today. I'm Natalie So. The Sound of the Puyuma Tribe on Radio Taiwan International. Today's time traveler is John Van Trieste and the destination, the 17th century. In 
the 1620s, a new Dutch outpost on Taiwan's southwest coast was swept up in a drama that threatened to destroy the whole project. The Dutch authorities found themselves up against a powerful, determined foreign enemy. And as friction grew, plots began to form. By the time tensions blew up in 1628, the Dutch colony's future and its governor's life would be in danger. Dutch colonial rule on Taiwan stretched for 38 years and came to include large areas of the island. But the string of events we're looking at this week might have ended it all before it had even really begun. Suetsugu Heizo Masanao was a powerful man. His family had risen with wealth from the trade that came into the Japanese port of Nagasaki. He was now the port city's magistrate, after having made accusations that had seen his predecessor conveniently executed. He was in with Japan's shogunate, but also an independent force in his own right. He and Japanese merchants like him were invested in Taiwan. This was a place just outside of Chinese jurisdiction, where Chinese merchants could conveniently ignore their government's ban on trade with Japan. The Chinese silk, exchanged for Japanese silver here, was a hot item. So too were the skins of local Taiwanese deer. There was, in other words, money to be made here. On the same stretch of marshy coastline where much of this trade went down, Dutch merchants also set up shop in 1624. Suetsugu and Japanese merchants like him were well aware of the Dutch. After all, the Dutch East India Company, the ones who paid for this Taiwanese outpost, had a big interest in Japan, too. On Taiwan, Japanese and Dutch traders were destined to clash. Because unlike the Japanese, who were just here to trade, the Dutch East India Company was also concerned with ruling the place. The company wanted the Japanese merchants out. The promise of Japanese silver threatens to undercut Dutch trade. Just a year into the colony's existence, the collision course was set. In 1625, the first Dutch governor ordered some Japanese ships to pay a 10% duty on the goods they took on in Taiwan. When they refused to pay up, he seized a big part of their cargo. Then a letter from company headquarters arrived forbidding all future Japanese trade. Suetsugu and his fellow merchants were not amused. Their ships had received licenses to trade in Taiwan from the shogun. Who were these upstarts to claim sovereignty in a place where trade had been free before? The following year, Japanese ships were blocked from unloading their wares altogether. The crews were told they'd have to wait for new orders from company headquarters. None came. Soon, the Japanese crew said they wanted to leave for China to try their luck there despite the trading ban. Though worried at first about the Chinese reaction, the Dutch authorities eventually came around to the idea. But by then the winds had changed, and the crews were stuck in Taiwan for the winter. They were fed up. As spring came, and more disagreements with it, the Japanese crews took an unusual course of action. They had dealings with an indigenous village called Singkan, right in the heart of the area the Dutch claimed to rule. They went to the village and convinced a group of local men to board their ships for a secret mission to Japan. In the home of Suetugu, 
They were carefully coached on how to act and dressed to look their part. They were going to try and pass themselves off as ambassadors from Taiwan. Some sources say the group's leader, a man called Dika, was even meant to be presented as some kind of lord of Taiwan. Of course, there was no such thing. But officials didn't have to know that. An entourage like this might undermine Dutch claims of sovereignty on Taiwan. Suetsugu is even supposed to have delivered a letter to a governor disguised as a letter from these supposed ambassadors. In it, there were complaints of Dutch restrictions on trade and mistreatment of Japanese merchants. Now the ambassadors were going to be marched across the country for an audience with the shogun himself. A number of writers say that men like Suetsugu were hoping to see Japan replace the Dutch as Taiwan's sovereign. No matter what they were hoping, though, things didn't go to plan. The fake ambassadors got smallpox, some say the shogun might not have been at the reception, and in any case, whatever interest he may have had in Taiwan soon dried up. Amid the failed mission, trouble was brewing. Taiwan's incoming Dutch governor found out what had happened, and the idea of his subjects going around masquerading as ambassadors did not please him. Sixteen twenty-seven was the year that Peter Nautz got two jobs he probably shouldn't have been considered for. One, as we just mentioned, was governor of Taiwan. The other was as an envoy to Japan. The Japan trade was important to Dutch profits in Asia, and with the recent friction, someone would have to go smooth things over and see the trade keep coming. This mission was a disaster. His audience with the shogun was blocked, and his personal character, described as incompetent, aggressive, headstrong, inexperienced, and arrogant, so angered the shogun's officials that he probably ended up making things worse. But he'd found out about this embassy charade, and he managed to make it back to Taiwan before the fake ambassadors could. The decisions he made when they arrived would set off a real crisis. When the Japanese ships bringing them home showed up. Nauts had the ambassadors seized and put in irons. Meanwhile, the ships that brought them were held up as well. The crew's anger at their detention built. One of Suetsugu's captains, the same man who'd helped coordinate the ambassadors' voyage, now took the lead in a new plan. In June 1628, the Japanese crew members paid a visit to Nauts, announcing their departure. When the governor told them no yet again, they sprung at him. Tying him up, and after a brisk fight, barricading themselves in with their hostage. Conditions for the governor's release included letting the fake ambassadors go and returning the shogun's gifts to them. There was also to be an exchange of hostages, an exchange that would see Nauts's son taken to Japan, where he would die in prison. Everything was done as the captors demanded. The potential damage to the Dutch East India Company was enormous. Suetsugu had all Dutch operations in Japan shut down, and all Dutch ships held. The shogunate's message was that if the Dutch wanted to resume their profit-making in Japan, they would need to abandon Taiwan altogether. This would allow men like Suetsugu to go back to trading there without interference. This wasn't something the Dutch side was prepared to do. But the embargo was a heavy blow, and without the Japan trade, Dutch Taiwan wasn't feasible. 
This problem was still festering in 1630 when news broke that Suetsugu had died. Seeing that the winds had shifted in their favor, the Dutch now decided to make a new overture. In 1632, a new prisoner was shipped to Japan. This time, the now ex governor Peter Nouts, whose two year tenure had ended in disgrace and recall. The surviving Dutch hostages and prisoners were released. Trade was allowed to resume, and the Dutch East India Company didn't have to give up Taiwan after all. Nouts, as the one blamed for the bulk of the debacle, would spend four years in captivity. Through the 1630s, more good news came. The shogunate had decreed that no Japanese were to leave the country at all. This left one of the fiercest competitors for trade in Taiwan out of the picture. A serious danger that had threatened early Dutch rule on Taiwan had suddenly lifted of its own accord. But as this incident shows, Dutch Taiwan could be vulnerable to its neighbors when they found themselves interested in this island. A few decades later, a force from another powerful neighbor, this time China, would be the thing that finally brought Dutch Taiwan to its end. I'm John Van Trieste, and I hope you'll join me again next week for another journey through time. This is Taiwan Explained, brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. In today's Taiwan Explained, I'm going to tell you all about Taiwanese voters. All right, Natalie, we have 60 seconds on the clock. Are you ready? Yes, I am. All right, let's do it. Taiwanese voters can be very passionate about elections. Hundreds of thousands went to the presidential candidates' rallies last week. Then on election day, they went to their hometown to vote. There's no other way to vote. You have to bring your ID and signature chop and go to your assigned voting station between 8 a.m. and 4 p.m. on the day. Even with all that trouble, there's always a big turnout. Taiwan held its first presidential elections in 1996 and 76% voted. Since then, 66 to 83% of the electorate have voted in each election. So, how old are voters? Well, you have to be 20 to vote. The biggest group is between 40 to 59 years old at 38%. In this election, younger voters tended to vote for Thai and older voters for Han. But in the 2016 elections, the most active voters were 55 and over, younger voters were less active, and women under 60 had a higher turnout than men. Nearly 70% of voters are registered in the six major cities. New Taipei City has the most at over 3.3 million. <laughs> I made it. Very nice, Natalie. Good job. So, Natalie, you are a voter, right? I'm a voter, and it's very easy to vote in Taiwan. You're usually assigned a polling station like within a five to 10 minute walk of your home. So, you just go there, and the wait this time was just five minutes. That's incredible. So usually it's five to 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. It's very simple. Very easy. They make it easy for you. There's tons of polling stations. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people are there voting. Now, the voting age is 20, but some people are trying to move it down to 18. Right. Most of the world, 90% of the world, is at 18 years old. Mm -hmm. So there's good reason for that. And people can drink at 18 here, they can serve in the military. So a lot of people think they should be able to vote, and that would be good for those who appeal to younger voters. Mm -hmm. So it's still in the legislature. It hasn't 
gotten much traction yet, but we'll see. Maybe that will happen. They can vote for referendums though, 18 year olds. Uh, excellent. Well, thank you very much, Natalie. And that's today's Taiwan Explained. RTI, exercise for your mind. Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw for the latest news and features from Taiwan. You can also listen to our programs and watch videos as well. Our 60-minute English language program can also be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kHz. Again, that's in southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kHz. And in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. Again, that's in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Again, that's P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Or send an email to rti at rti.org.tw. Again, that's rti at rti.org.tw. Also visit us on Facebook. The address is fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International. Once again, on Facebook, we're located at fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International for videos, photos, and news of interest from Taiwan. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International. <laughs> 